I think we've all noticed lately uh, the trend toward men having humongous bushy beards. You know, like, I mean, this is beyond the 70s beard trends. This is like, this is like lumberjack beards have become the standard. And, you know, I don't like them. And it's not that I don't like the way you look if you have one. It's that I can't grow one. That's probably the main thing. So, uh, you know, there's a little bitterness there. But at the same time, you know, I mean, anymore, I don't know who I'm talking to. I, I, I can't tell people apart. I've met certain people, you know, once or twice or, or I, I kind of know them and, and we're friends on Facebook. And I'm like, ee, is it this guy or the other guy? Because everyone's face is obscured by a big giant beard. A friend of mine, Joe Thorne, who's a pastor uh, at a Reformed Baptist church, has one of these big beards. And he told me that the reason that he, he's so in favor of men having giant beards is not because they're manly, but because men are ugly. And we want to cover our faces up so that people don't have to look at them. And, and I don't know about that. I mean, I, I find that a little offensive. Even though almost all of my Bible heroes and heroes throughout history have had beards, you look at the flannel graphs, they'll show you. Uh, for some reason, Adam is never shown with a beard. I'm not sure why not. But, you know, Noah always is, and Elijah, and, of course, John the Baptist. And we know Jesus had a beard. And, and you know, all, all these guys. And then through history, men like Spurgeon had a beard, Calvin. Uh, and, and yet, I, I want to be able to see who I'm talking to. Is that just too much to ask? And I'll tell you what, Moses is one who famously had a glorious beard. I mean, just look at Charlton Heston uh, on the Ten Commandments. And yet, if you were to really look at Moses, not a, a painting of him, not a movie of him, but actually see Moses after the events of the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't even be able to see his beard. Because not only was his face covered up by his giant, luxurious beard, but it was also covered by a veil. We, we read about this in Exodus chapter 34. That when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. And that's kind of not a very well-known aspect of Moses, uh, that that he was walking around with a big veil on his face, uh, much of his his, uh, public ministry. Uh, and, and Paul picks up on that here in 2 Corinthians 3 as he furthers this thing that he began last time about the letter of the law killing, but the spirit giving life. See, when he was up on that mountain, Moses was getting the letter of the law from God the Father, 
And the giving of the law was accompanied by, by so much glory that the Israelites could not look directly at Moses' face because of the glory that was shining off of him. The, the people were terrified of God up on the mountain, you know, with the thunder and the lightning and the smoke. And they said, Moses, you have to go up and talk to him. We can't talk to him. But then when Moses came down, they, they were even afraid of him because he'd soaked some of that glory up. So it's not that Paul is telling us in, in these chapters that the letter of the law law was was weak or or useless it was glorious how glorious was it well just look at moses oh that's right you can't because his face is shining too much so the law at sinai it's not bad it's good and spiritual paul tells us that elsewhere god himself wrote the law on the tablets of stone so the problem here is, is the evil that is in the hearts of the people and the law shines a light on that And since it was written in stone, not on the heart, it did not give the ability to obey the law. There's the glory of God, which is a consuming fire, which they saw at the top of Mount Sinai. And the people are now aware, because of the law, that they will be consumed if they enter God's presence, apart from him making a way for them. Romans 7 says it this way, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. It was the people then, not the law, that caused it to bring death because the commandments themselves could not give people the power to obey them. The effect of the commandment was therefore condemnation. So here in verse 9, we read, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So yes, the, the Old Testament law, the letter of the law, the Old Covenant, they were all so glorious that they caused Moses' face to shine, but they are well exceeded, far exceeded by the glory of the New Covenant. In Hebrews 10, the law was, quote, just a shadow of the good things to come, rather than the true form of these realities. And it's the same thing as the sun and the moon. It's like the old covenant is like a full moon on a cloudless night, and it seems to to light up the night, and it seems to shine so brightly. But then when the sun comes up, the moon usually just disappears. And even if you can still see it, it no longer, there's no sense at all that it is lighting up the sky. No, it's clearly just reflecting some little bit of the light coming from the sun. So the new covenant is the sun. And the old covenant was just like the moon re- reflecting beforehand what the sun would be like. Here's a, a, a taste of the light that is to come. Only the analogy breaks down a little because you can stare into the moon, but you can't stare into the sun. And it's backwards here. They couldn't stare into the face of Moses with the old covenant, which was reflecting the new. But we can stare into the face of Christ, we are told, because we're changed. If the problem lies not in the covenant, but in the person, we've been changed. Verse 10, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Again, the the moon basically just fades out of the sky during the day. Not only surpassed in brightness, but, but in duration because it doesn't just last a day. 
The old was temporary. It was temporary glory. It was transitory. Three times, Paul here calls the old covenant, quote, that which is fading away. But he goes on, and if that which was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? The the light of the old covenant was superseded by the unfading glory of the new covenant, which is permanent. Calls to mind Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. It is eternal. This hope is the reason for his boldness. Paul tells us, and his plain speak, that he didn't have to come in like the super apostles and start tweaking the gospel and start speaking with all this fancy rhetoric and and raspy voice like the preachers on TV. He just came in and boldly and clearly said, listen, this is the truth, and the truth will set you free. And just think about the absolute, the guts it would take to come in and compare yourself to Moses and compare your ministry to Moses' ministry and say, yeah, mine is better in every way. Of course, the difference was not between Paul and Moses, the two men, but between the two covenants. The one that Paul was able to minister under is absolutely superior in every way. We find out here that the, the opponents, these what he calls super apostles, tongue-in-cheek, were legalists. And it's odd how often... Uh, the These kind of very scratch your itching ears, tell you what you want to hear people are legalists. They'll, they'll hit you with the letter of the law, even though the law brings death, but they'll do it in such a nice way. So they'll, they'll bring you like law light. Like it's all about you living your dreams and you have to actualize and you have to visualize and you have to banish the stinking thinking and all these things. But it's still law because it's still about what you're doing, not about what Christ has done. And, and even when the law is preached correctly, the glory is fading. You know, because Moses had covered his face and only uncovered it when he went into the tabernacle, the people didn't realize it was a fading glory, that it faded away until he went back into God's presence. That veil was there, keeping them from seeing exactly what was going on. And Paul tells us in this passage that that same veil keeps them from seeing the temporary nature of the old covenant up until the point that this book was written. But their minds, he writes, were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now realize that that when Paul was writing these words, Christian churches and Jewish synagogues were using the very same scriptures. Paul's writing the New Testament, but it hasn't yet been established as the New Testament. So they were reading these letters uh, in in their gatherings, but when they got the scriptures out, the scrolls of the scriptures, they were the same. And Paul says that everyone who hears them has a veil over his or her heart until that veil is removed by Christ. If we put this together with John 9, verses 40 and 41, it helps us to see. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. And so there's this idea that those who, uh, the teachers of the law, those who are like Paul used to be when he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, who who claim to understand most about God because of the light of the old covenant, they have a veil there that is hiding God from them. And yes, Paul is speaking from experience. 
He was one of the most upright and religious people of his day. And looking back at that, he says, I was just in utter darkness. There, there were baby Christians who understood far more about God than I did at that time because of this veil. And this is not some new thing that Paul is bringing out, some controversial thing. This has been with God's people from the beginning. I mean, go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. From the beginning, the spirit has had to remove the veil of sin and obstinance from the human heart in order for us to understand what he is telling us. From from the fall, from Genesis chapter 3 on, the spirit must take away the veil. And that spirit is the spirit of Christ. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so the Spirit removes the veil and brings freedom. This is beautifully pictured in the death of Christ. Well, there was a veil, a spiritual veil, over the hearts of of those who were encountering God until it was removed. There was also a big, physical, enormous veil, literally there, blocking off God's presence in the Holy of Holies, in in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. A kind of reminder that you can't quite come into God's presence. Someone else does it on your behalf and only once a year can they do it and only with blood and only in this certain way. Well, when Christ died and he, he said, it is finished and into your hands I commit my spirit, that veil was torn in half from top to bottom. God was showing, I am removing this veil, not not in a little way, but in a big way and in a final way, tearing it in half. Not temporarily, you can take it off and come in and we, we need to put it back on. And, but, but no, not like Moses, something greater. Christ is so much greater. He removed the veil and tore it in half and cast it aside. And in that moment, the veil was torn in half in the temple. And from that point on, the veil covering our minds can be removed, torn in half, removed once and for all by faith in Christ. We were once in bondage to the law and death. But now, Paul wrote in Romans 7, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. This is why I understand when people get off on these little tangents about how Christianity is not a religion. They're they're off base, but I understand where they're coming from. Because there are so many religions in the world, but they don't remove the veil. They dress it up. They celebrate it. They, they speculate about what's on the other side. But only Christianity, only God's grace through our faith in Christ removes the veil. And when sinners try to earn their salvation through keeping a set of rules, not only are they destined to fail, what should be submission and humility becomes competitiveness and spiritual pride like the Pharisees, like Saul before his conversion. The difference is not religion versus relationship or something. The difference is dead religion versus living religion. Religion that fades versus religion that is eternal. And the fading happens. It always happens. There is an absolute shelf life on legalistic religion. It is always fading. And there's usually a veil there to hide the fading, just like with Moses. But, you know, it's always fading. You can gather people together with legalism, 
with the letter of the law, you can get a whole lot of people really excited. You can get a television broadcast, but it won't last. It will fade. You know, it used to be lists of rules, the old hard legalism. Now it's, oh, here's one secret for living your life to the utmost today. And, and it's all real upbeat and positive. And, and it, and it can get a crowd. It can put, it can put people in the pews or usually in like theater style seats or something, but it is fading already into irrelevance. In the moment, legalism, the letter of the law can feel good because I'm in control. This is all me. I'm the one doing it and I can choose when and how to do what I do. Essentially, I stand there, you know, scrubbing and polishing the outside of the dish saying I can get the outside so very clean and spotless and and gleaming and I can stand next to it and say to everyone, look at how clean this, this dish is. And, and if I get a spot on it, I can immediately rub it away and, and I can present this false picture of how clean and, and together I am. But inside, I know it's a disaster. The gospel, on the other hand, gives freedom to open up the mess, to, to open up what's on the inside and start sifting through it with our Savior. And he begins to pull out all of the filth and clean the inside. That is the difference. Adopting or affecting a quote-unquote Christian lifestyle is easier than dying to self. But if it's just that, if it's just the letter of a law, it kills. It doesn't bring life. It just brings the appearance of life. Constant motion, no rest. There's even churches. There's a church in, Re- in Revelation that Jesus rebukes. The church in Sardis had the appearance of life, but it was dead. There was, there was a flurry of activity there, and everyone knew the place was happening. But there was no rest for those people, and there was no life for them. It's funny, I, I was working on a book uh, a couple years ago, and I was listening to some interviews with a detective who had uh, written uh, one of the, the main textbooks on police interrogation. And he said most of the, the kind of television tropes and cliches about interrogating people are false, but one of them is true. And that is that guilty people, when they're caught, they sleep. And this is what I mean by that. If you if you arrest somebody and, you know, everyone says, you got the wrong guy, I didn't do this, I'm innocent, etc. They all say the same thing, but they throw them in a cell and they watch them into the night. And someone who's uh, guilty and they find out later and confirm they, they did it, they will lie down on the cot. They will not pace back and forth. They won't stay up all night. There's something in their brain that's been waiting for kind of the relief of of being caught because they know they're guilty. And that's kind of the difference between this false religion and true religion, the religion that's fading and the religion that is enduring and eternal, religion that that is letter of the law that kills and religion that gives life. There's, There's the religion that's just constant motion. It can't rest. It can't stop. And then there is rest in Christ. And of course, we work for the kingdom and we toil for the kingdom. And as as Paul's been telling us, he even suffers for the kingdom. And yet, even in the midst of that, he finds his Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. And beyond that, he finds his freedom in Christ, as do we. And freedom, as as Paul talks about it here, does not mean autonomy, does not mean self-law. I create for myself a law, I do what I will. That's actually the, the satanic Uh, creed. Do what you will be the whole of the law. No, we are under the law of love. We still are uh, beholden. We still do obey and follow Christ. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And then he said, go and, and make disciples and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. 
No, it's not the kind of freedom that the world holds up. It's not the kind of freedom that throws off all restraint. We might think of this example of Moses uh, leading the people out of slavery and, and captivity in Egypt and into freedom, and yet they didn't become free to do whatever they wanted. They were God's people. In fact, it's after they're led out of slavery and into freedom that God brings Moses up on the mountain and gives him the law for the people to obey. People will always have a tendency to equate freedom with slavery to sin. It's a very devious and and very sneaky thing that the devil does, and we're quick in our flesh to glom onto it. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter, which we just looked at, he, he addressed this. Remember, he said in 1 Peter 2, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So what we have in Christ is not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin, and it's freedom from so much more. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from guilt, freedom from death, freedom from continual sacrifice, freedom from blindness to the gospel, freedom from that veil that's been torn apart, and freedom to come boldly before the throne of God. We are free now to love not, not the kind of quote-unquote free love which the world celebrates, which is really just slavery to lust and sin and the flesh. No, we're free now to live for the very purpose for which we were created. Free to celebrate and exercise our own gifts. Free to give ourselves to one another in humble service. Paul brings it home there in verse 18 when he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Being transformed. God brings righteousness to us, right standing with God, as well as the glorious presence of God's power, which transforms us. The word there is metamorpho, the same word from which we get our word metamorphosis, you know, the changing of a caterpillar to a a butterfly. And that's not too far afield from what this actually meant originally in in the Greek a change, a transformation from one degree of glory to another. There is the change in the heart as we are set free and justified and then ever-increasing glory, ever-increasing brightness, ever-increasing happiness in Christ as we are sanctified more and more. Unlike Moses' face, which faded with time and he had to go get re-upped all the time, this is a glory which is brighter and brighter and brighter with ever-increasing glory. And when that veil comes off, not only does it allow us all the more to behold him, we also reflect his glory more and more. At the end of the day, the law is glorious and did exactly what it was supposed to do. It guided people, and not gently, to God's grace, which is ultimately found at the cross. And and so the law kills, but in one sense, the fact that the law kills is good news. It kills our hope of saving ourselves. It kills our old self. It kills our sin nature. And it leaves us basking in the beautiful light of the face of Christ. May we reflect that light as we go out from this place. And may we remember that our salvation is never found in what we do, but in what Christ has done for us.